0: Well, good morning, transit family. Find your seat, find your seat. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, and all of chapter 3. So Nehemiah 2, 17 through 20, and we're going to briefly look at chapter 3. Quick side note, we hope you can join us uh, for the prayer walk this evening in our, not this evening, this afternoon, in our, you're going to be out there for like 10 hours, guys, so I hope you pack the lunch. Okay, just kidding. Uh... But uh, if you can't make it or, um, you know, you're just like, ah, that's not my thing, uh, my encouragement, there's no judgment. And like Jake said, we're not checking who's leaving and who's attending. We're not doing that. Um, My encouragement would be this. Mark your calendars for September 10th. September 10th on Saturday uh, around 9 a.m. we're going to do our next evangelism training. It'll be well worth your time to get some tools to share the hope and love of Jesus uh, with those that don't know uh, the hope that we have in him and the salvation that we have in him. So mark your calendar, September 10th, September 10th, make your uh, best effort to be there. Um, all right, so if you were here last week, you know that where we left off was this, is that we saw that Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, has finally stepped foot in Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes gave him everything he needed to rebuild uh, the ruined uh, uh, city gates and walls of Jerusalem. And last week we saw that Nehemiah did a full assessment of the brokenness. He didn't leave a stone uncovered in inspecting how bad the damage was. So for three nights he went out and did that, didn't tell anyone. And where we're at today in verse 17 of chapter 2 is Nehemiah has gathered all the necessary intel and it's finally time to rally the troops to share the mission and rebuild the wall. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, who's ready to dive in? You guys with us? All right, amen. Uh, we're going to read this, pray, and dive in. Nehemiah 2:17 through 20. And then I said to them, Nehemiah, do you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you so grateful. Lord God, thank you for the, uh, the honor and the privilege it is just to sing the praises of what you've done for us, God. Who you are the lamb that was slain hallelujah it is finished our sins remembered no more washed and cleansed no guilt no condemnation perfect peace before a holy and just god so that we can approach your throne with confidence and not fear and trepidation thank you lord we come with mouths full of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. Thank you for the gift of your word and the example of Nehemiah and the people of God and uh, what you did and accomplished through them and their willingness to follow you, Lord Jesus. And we just pray right now that uh, you would have your way with our hearts and our lives, Lord Jesus. Where are you calling us to build? Where are you calling us to go? Where What are you calling us to do situationally, individually, and also collectively? So come Holy Spirit, have your way with our hearts, have your way with your, your word. And and would you magnify Jesus? Would he increase and I decrease? And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, um, the approach I'm taking with the message this morning is this, is that in order for God's people to be used by God to rebuild the brokenness around us, there's three things that we have to do that we see in our text, three principles we're going to pull out. We need to own the mission, count the cost, and collectively contend for the kingdom. So the first thing we see uh, the people of Jerusalem do is they own the mission. And the picture we get immediately in the text is like, man, this is Nehemiah's moment. Like, this is his Braveheart speech moment. Any of you remember that movie? Am I dating myself? Okay. This is his Braveheart speech moment. Maybe he's standing on, like, the eastern wall. That's a bunch of rubble, but he's there with his megaphone, and he's rallied the hundreds and thousands of, what we saw in verse 16, the nobles, the priests, the Jews, the officials, The bakers, the baristas, so on and so forth, the Uber drivers—they're all there. And he's standing on the torn-down walls, megaphone in hand. Thousands gathered, and he gives this beautiful call to action. We just get a snapshot. Obviously, he's he's articulating a lot more here, but basically, what he does, he says, "I explain what uh, Yahweh commissioned me to do, like Jerusalem. Like I don't know if you know this, but uh, for three to five months, I've been fasting and praying, and the Lord, the Sovereign Lord." Uh, used a pagan king, Artaxerxes, to fully fund and give authorization to rebuild God's city. That's insane. So basically what he's saying is, the time is now. If this is our moment, if it's not now, if we don't seize this opportunity, when will this city get rebuilt? And if it's not us, collectively, who's going to rebuild it? Who's going to do it? Like, we can't pass this moment by. There's a sense of urgency. There's a call to action. You, yes, you. And now, yes, now. We need to get to work. And then, you know, uh, they, might, they might take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom kind of moment, right? Maybe he concluded with that. But basically, he, he says this. He says, who's with me, essentially? Come, let us build. And we see the people respond, and they say this. They, like, Nehemiah kind of throws the pass. He's got a beautiful spiral, like Aaron Rodgers pass that mission, and the people catch it, and they own it, and they say, let us, if you look at verse 17, let us arise and build. Not just Nehemiah, let all of us collectively rally around God's mission for God's people to rebuild God's city and restore it to the fullness of its glory for God's glory. So I imagine the atmosphere in Jerusalem now after this, this braveheart speech, this call to action is electric, right? Everyone's excited. It said in verse 17 that they, they began to, to strengthen their hands for the work. Right? Maybe people who had no brick and mortar skills are watching like YouTube videos, DIY, how to rebuild walls, okay, this is how you mix concrete. Okay, let's figure this thing out. It's electric, like QI of the tiger, you know, the montage there, bump, 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 bump. Everyone's getting ready to rebuild this. But here's what we need to realize is that they didn't have to respond this way. Nehemiah could have thrown the pass, and they could have turned around, and they could have hit him in the back of the head. I said, hey, Nehemiah, that's great for you, man. Like, wow, that was, that was a moving speech. Who is this guy? Does this guy have a podcast? See, yeah, it's called Rise and Build. It's his podcast. You should listen to his stuff. It's really, Like, that was moving. Nehemiah, that's your thing. I can't wait to see what you do about this cool mission God's given you. I have kind of a different thing going on, but that's cool for you. That's your truth. That's your mission, not my truth, my mission. That's actually, I'm going to talk a little bit later. That's actually not my gifting, Nehemiah. So that's your gifting, your calling. They could have done that. They could have not owned the mission. And we need to ask, well, then how then did Nehemiah's mission become their mission? How how did the transition happen where it goes, this is his burden, this is his commission, Nehemiah's, to know this is ours collectively. This is ours collectively. And the key to this transition is this. Nehemiah wasn't calling them to rebuild his house, right? Like, Nehemiah didn't come and rally everyone and say, hey, I'm the governor of Judah, and I don't have a house. He said, all of you are going to help me build my house for my glory in the answer. No, no, Nehemiah didn't call them to himself. He called them to the highest authority in the land, to God himself. He said, this is actually God's mission. This is God's city. And you and I collectively are equal playing field. We're God's people. And so if it's not us who's going to rebuild this, the city, which is God's city, the hope to the nations, God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people is what Jerusalem and the temple represented, the nations being blessed through the king who'd be seated on that throne, Mount Zion. If it's not us who's going to build it, is, 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 I mean, who's going to do that? The Egyptians are going to come and be like, hey, we want to do you a favor and rebuild that? Or the king of Persia is going to send more? You know, like, no, it's us. It's our city. It's our mission. They took ownership Of it, it's a clear sense of uh, if not us, then who? This is our duty, our calling, our mission. And uh, if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm guilty as charged, we subconsciously do a great job at outsourcing the Great Commission, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like it's not I'm not trying to condemn anyone or you know like shame anyone. I'm right there with you. Subconscious, we outsource the Great Commission. At the Great Commission, before the Ascension of Jesus, the last thing before his Ascension that Jesus said essentially to his followers was, come with me and let us build something beautiful together to the ends of the world. Let's restore this thing with the hope and the power of the gospel. I'm authorizing you, my followers, to be the sole agents of restoration to the nations across the globe. That's your job site, is the, na- the, the entire globe. My presence, my glory going to the ends of the earth. Reclaim the nations and rebuild the ruins of devastation there. Matthew 28:18. Uh, through 20, the Great Commission. We need to be reminded of what Jesus has commissioned all of us as followers of Jesus to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's authorized us. He's saying, I am the chief authority in the land. Doesn't matter what anyone else says or what you say, this is what I'm commissioning you to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus here has looked at his followers and he said, come let us build, let's restore, let's go and, and love and preach this gospel and show the world what I'm like and tell them what I've done. And what we need to wrestle with today is have we responded like the people of Jerusalem to Nehemiah's call and said, let us arise and build. Or are our prayers as we pray Luke ten two, Lord send out laborers to the harvest. Are we praying for other people to go? Are we saying, Lord, and also send me as well, right? Send me as well. I think one of the primary reasons we tend to outsource the Great Commission and not take ownership of it in our vocation or in our neighborhoods or, um, or the gospel going to the nations and partnering with missionaries or going ourselves is, one, is sometimes we think the Great Commission is not actually that great, that it's an awful commission, that it's this burden that I never live up to, and it crushes me. And it's, it's, it's hard. I, I can't do it, right? We, we don't think it's a great commission. We think it's, a, it's an awful commission. So, so, so subconsciously, we might, we might think that. And So for the prayer walk today is, you know, we're, we're wrestling maybe with some of those who are going. Maybe yesterday you're wrestling with your heart and, and Lord praying about the encounters we'll have out there and the people we're going to be praying for. Maybe there's like, ah, oh, this is such, this is so hard. It's kind of embarrassing. I, you know, like oh, I'm an introvert and I don't, you know, small talk is all that stuff, right? What if it's the greatest privilege of our lives to share with other people what Jesus has done, right? What if that's a, what if what if it's the most amazing privilege? Jesus saying, "I've saved you, I've rescued you, life forever." We saying today, "Life forever with Jesus," and we just get to go. We don't tell them about ourselves. We tell them what Jesus has done. We tell them about the Savior who has come and entered into our brokenness and made something beautiful and restored what we have ruined in our own sins. It's the greatest honor, the greatest privilege. As Jesus has transformed us, then we get to go and say, "Now he just says, now go do, go tell him what I did. Go be, go go be agents of transformation in your community. Go tell him what I'm like. Go show him what I'm like." So I think I think sometimes we have we, we 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 misunderstand the Great Commission, and we we forget. Oh my gosh, this is the most amazing privilege on the planet to tell someone about Jesus. This is an honor. It's a, the greatest blessing of my life. is telling them about my Savior and who he is and what he's done, and that that, that, and that, that savior could be their savior as well. And, and, and then secondly, secondly, I think the second reason we outsource this is our sense of inadequacy, right? We all, to attend, unless we're super proud, but we all struggle with this sense of inadequacy, right? That's why we want to outsource the great commissioners. Like, ah, let the professionals do that, right? Like, ah, let the parachurch ministries do that, or let the pastor do that, or let the missionaries do that, but I, I'm JV squad, right? I can, I can barely, like, fold my clothes right in the drawer, like, let alone, like, share the gospel, like, to the ends of the earth, Sense of, inadequacy. Ad- sense of inadequacy, okay? Who here played a sport growing up? Anyone play sport growing up? Okay, some of you. Okay, so I grew up playing ice hockey, and do you all remember when you, when you played the sport growing up, it was like down to a wire, down to the wire. It was like the U14 league, but it was really epic because that was like your life back then, and it was the fourth, the third period or the fourth quarter. There's like two, second, two minutes left, but you're down by one goal, and you're kind of like, you, you all know that like the coaches... Only puts like the best players on the ice for the last two minutes. And you kinda want to be that player, but you also kind of don't want to have that responsibility. You know what I'm saying? And then there comes that moment where the coach is like, Muddy, they all called me Muddy. Muddy, get out there, get on the ice. You know, it didn't happen too often. But Muddy, get out there. And I was like, This muddy? Mean me? What can I do? What can I contribute? Like there's other, there's other people. I want to outsource the victory. outsource the you know the 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 last two minutes of the game to somebody else but what if what if i say that it's my u14 league and the coach goes hey man hey man like here's the deal you're gonna go on the ice but alexander ovechkin's gonna go with you right nobody knows who alexander ovechkin okay so (laughs) you're gonna you're gonna go on the court but lebron james is going with you and you go well coach this is u14 league what do you mean lebron james is gonna come with me and then, and then the coach says, well, hey, it's actually in your contract that um, wherever you go, LeBron James goes with you on the court, so that's why I'm sending you out there, right? Would that change your attitude? Like, like I would just want to go, I'm like, I don't really care, like, what happens. I just want to see what Ovi or LeBron does on the field, on the court, on the ice, right? It totally changes. So the, the key line to the Great Commission, which we always forget, we focused on ourselves, go make disciples. Oh, I want them. And Jesus says at the end, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't, there's no expiration date on my presence in your life. I am with you always as a follower of Jesus. You can't sin your way out of my presence or sin your way in. If you are covered by the grace of God, the Spirit of God has filled you, and where you go, he goes forever to the end of the age. So that changes the game, church. That changes the entire game. If I'm going to step on the ice and Alexander Ovechkin's going with me, Wherever I go in a U14 league, like the reason I say that is he's the best hockey player. Just imagine if a professional athlete played with 14-year-olds, right? But does not, do we not carry the spirit of the living God with us wherever we go? So it changes the game. We don't go alone. This is Acts one We went through a sermon series in Acts one But you will receive, say what, someone say it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? If I just blow things up or have a cool experience, no power to do what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Third person of the Trinity, the omnipotent Holy Spirit, clothing us in power to do what? To empower us to go. So you and I, we do not commute to work alone. We do not, whatever you do at work, you don't do that alone you don't commute back to work alone, you don't parent alone, you don't uh, live alone, you don't walk alone. The God of glory is with you because where you are is where he wants to be to the extent that the father would crush his son so that he could dwell in your midst forever. So it completely changes the game. We don't go alone. So therefore, we can own the mission and not look to ourselves and what we're not doing or what we're doing, but look to the one who said, I'm with you, and now step on the ice and say, let's get after it and see what he does. And last month, when we went out uh, for the fourth, uh, the the rhythm is every fourth Sunday, we go out for a prayer walk. We saw two people get radically, powerfully touched by the Lord as we went out there for like 30 minutes. It was wild. And uh, uh, two individuals were praying for someone who didn't speak English. And 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 through like, you know, like broken Spanish, they were able to say, hey, can we pray for you? The person was like, yeah. And the person just starts weeping. Doesn't even know what they're saying. Sobbing uncontrollably as God is ministering something to that person in that moment. Life changed. I have no idea what that person's wrestling with, but with both of those groups, uh, those powerful testimonies, what was awesome is there's the Holy Spirit who kind of, who led them and guided them. That's what was awesome about it. We don't go out alone, so therefore we can own the mission because it's not just the mission. It's the fact that we don't go alone to accomplish that. Jesus, Jesus wants to partner with us in that. We don't leave Jesus in the church and then go out. No, Jesus is like, hey, you take me with you, okay? That changes the game. Secondly, we need to count the cost. So we've got to own the mission, but secondly, we've got to count The cost. Immediately what we see in our text is that obeying God's call, following Jesus, is not all gumdrops and lollipops and moonwalking everywhere. Immediately we see opposition and true opposition and true threat to safety and danger happen in verse 19. Verse 19 says we're introduced to the three stooges. uh, Sandbalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab, and they jeered at us. And they despise us and jeered at us, don't think, like, uh, na na boo boo you won't be able to rebuild the walls. No, that's not what's happening. They're like, we're going to kill you and your family if you rebuild this wall. That's what they're saying. Now, um, do not think that these are like three like, street thugs who have no power to implement and to thwart like, what's happening here. No, no, no. These are leaders of provinces in, in, uh, in and around ancient Palestine. OK? So what we know about Sanballat is that he was the governor of Samaria which is north of Jerusalem, northwest of Jerusalem. What we know about Tobiah the Ammonite, he, he was the governor of Ammon, uh, which was northeast of Jerusalem. And what we know about Geshem is he was a powerful chieftain of Kedar in northwest Arabia, just south of Judah. So these are key leaders in that region who can back up their threats with armed forces to encircle torn down Jerusalem and do whatever they want to do. And it's kind of the Wild West. That province beyond the river is kind of the Wild West. And say they just, you know, take Nehemiah out and there's an uprising and they go back to King Artaxerxes and say, yeah, Nehemiah, he tried to attack us, so we were just defending ourselves. Like, they could back up what they said. It's a real threat to danger, is what I'm getting at. It's not just the three stooges, you know, like uh, whatever, some street thugs. They were the rulers of the provinces that were encircling Judah. And so, all that to say, I love the response of the people in face of real threat to their safety. They still counted the cost, and they assessed, that, um, they assessed what was at stake and resolved that the mission was worth the cost that could be paid. The mission of completing and rebuilding it, it was worth the cost. And it begs the question, well, how is that possible to have that response in the face of persecution and real persecution? And the only way it's possible is to love and trust in the Lord right? And this is the response we see with Nehemiah, is that this man trusted in God. He had humble confidence in the Lord, that this was the Lord's mission, not his own. Verse 20, then I, Nehemiah, replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we as servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Side note, not in my notes. Man, sometimes the adversary, the enemy, will attack you with thoughts of inadequacy and say, who are you to serve Jesus? Who are you to go share your faith? Who are you to even belong to a community group, let alone community group? And what we need is we need that James 4 chip on our shoulder, say, uh, resist the devil and resist that thought, right? We're saying, no, 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 God has called me. I'm a child of God. He's with me, and through hell or high water, I will obey him to the best of my abilities, empowered by the Spirit under the grace of God. That's how Nehemiah here, he doesn't give in. He doesn't cave. No, he gets a chip on his shoulder and says, okay, I'm I'm coming back at you. God of heaven will make us prosper. If you have an issue, take it up with him. And the beautiful thing about this, I heard this phrase a while back. I love this phrase. I was at a conference in June, and someone said, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. Like, if the Lord's going to call you to something, And you're like, how in the world are we going to be able to afford this? What, all these these situations, all stuff? If, If you know that you know that you know, like Nehemiah did, because Nehemiah knew that he knew that he knew that the Lord was in this because he knew that the only way a pagan king Artaxerxes would fund this is if the Lord moved the heart of the king. So he knows that God's in this. And so he has his trust and confidence that if it's God's will, God's calling me to do it through thick and thin, that God's going to provide a way. So he had confidence in the Lord. But secondly, the only way this attitude is possible for us to count the cost and to still move forward is when what could be gained far surpasses anything that could be lost. Or stated differently, this is what I'm getting at. When you love what you gain more than what you lose, you'll persevere through opposition. Okay? What I'm getting at is this, is love is always shown in sacrifice. Love is always shown in sacrifice. Love without sacrifice is not love. And sacrifice being that there's a cost, there's a price to be paid for my allegiance and my love to someone, and that sacrifice is the revelation of what you truly love. So I have a, a guilty pleasure, and there's a coffee shop called Java Loco up in anyone heard about that? Raise your hand. Okay, let me give you an insider tip about Java Loco. If you're a coffee drinker and you've never had a Vietnamese iced coffee with sea salt from Java Loco, it'll change your life. <laughs> it'll change your life. Now those jokers are expensive, Okay? Right? It's like eight bucks a pop, all right? And I don't normally, I normally just drink like freshly roasted coffee, I drink it black. But every now and then, not that often, every other day—no, just kidding. Uh, I'll go to Java Loco and I'll buy an eight-dollar cup of coffee, which is absurd, right? But here's the deal: I've tasted and seen as something, right? Like there's something there that has a, a, maybe call it a stronghold in my heart where I'm saying that it, this is worth the cost. I could spend that eight dollars, and a whole nother—I could do a whole lot with that eight dollars. But what I have tasted and seen, I'm willing to pay that price because it pales in comparison. It pales in comparison. And sometimes we put Jesus, like our whole life, right, is putting Jesus on the scales, like old school scales, not like the scales where you weigh yourself when you're going on a diet, but like the scales that, like a seesaw. And we put Jesus on the scale and, we, and everything that we'd have to sacrifice, and we say, which one is more valuable? And so, okay, like for me, you want to know what I, what, what for me is what Jesus called me to do, uh, like hitting the streets with the hope of Jesus and just trying to love people. And we're coming up here and it's like, okay, my reputation, I'd rather just crawl in a hole and just read books and drink coffee and following the call of Christ. Which one's going to win out? Which one is more valuable to me? Which one is more precious to me? And the common refrain of Jesus to his followers is, listen, I tip the scales fully and forever in your life. There is nothing you could put on the other side, there is no sacrifice. There is no cost that you are actually forfeiting because if you possess me, if, if I have you and you have me, you have everything you need in this life for all of eternity. I tip the scales. You can't place anything here that will make me less valuable in your life. And Jesus says it in this way in Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and Jesus was not seeking a, a large following, exhibit A. He wanted to know why people were gathering, and he goes for the jugular here. There's no accident that Luke describes that it's great crowds that were following, and Jesus kind of turns around, and he says some hard things, and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and child, children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot. It's impossible, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And I'll skip ahead to verse 32, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying there is if you pledge allegiance to me, if you confess my lordship over your life, you are simultaneously confessing all other, all other allegiances have no hold on you anymore. To, to profess Jesus as lord is to immediately identify yourself as slave and servant of Christ, meaning I have no rights of my own, and, I have, and everything I am and everything I own belongs to Jesus. If that's what it means to profess Jesus as lord is he calls the shots, What that means is wherever he wants to go, whatever he wants me to say, I'm going to go I'm going to do it because I no longer belong to me because thanks be to God, by the grace of God, he purchased me through his blood uh, from the demonic, from the kingdom of darkness. I was a child of wrath. We're just saying this this morning and now he's redeemed me. He purchased me by his blood. That was the ransom price for my redemption from slavery so that now I could follow Jesus and be his servant. And the highest calling in the world is we get to serve the king of glory. Isn't that amazing? He saved, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he saves us, and then he says, you know what? You're my workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which I prepared before you in advance, beforehand, for before you. Like, you're going to partner with me. I want to spend time with you. I want to build with you. I want to get in the nitty-gritty of your life and partner with you with what I've called you to do. He partners with us. He commissions us. And so our refrain then is this, Jesus, as long as I get you, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Because you're better, you're better, you're better. When I, when I put everything in the balance of what this world could offer and I put you here, you uh, far, far, your glory far exceeds the glory of anything this world can offer me. And there's a worship lyric I love uh, from Upper Room and it says this, one of the refrains of this worship song is this, is, when I see your face, I'll wish I'd given more away when I see your face, I'll wish I'd given more away. So the question becomes not what's on the other side of the scale. The question becomes, have we truly seen the glory of God? Have we tasted and seen of his goodness? Because my hope today is I'm trying to rush through my sermon so we can sing two last worship songs because that worship was just beautiful. And I think my heart was resonating with the Lord wanting me to stop talking so that we can worship our King and just remind ourselves of of what he's done for us and who we are because of what he's done. So I need to speed up here. But when I see your face, I'd wish I'd given more away. And so yes, let's look. Let's ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, where am I trying to tip the scales here? But most importantly, Jesus, show me your glory. Help me to see as much as I can on this side that you're worth anything you're asking me to sacrifice. Because when I see your face, everything's going to click. That moment when faith becomes sight, when the uh, perishable puts on imperishable, and we're glorified forever dwelling in the presence of God, we're going to look back Potentially on our lives and go. Oh my gosh! I could have given so much more. Why did I hedge my bets? Why was I so nervous? Why was I so scared? Why was I always biting my fingernails? This is the Christ of glory. Who said He was with me? This was my inheritance, not my 401k. This is a far better inheritance. Why did I? Why did I place all my chips here? Right. Love that. Okay. Lastly, we need to collectively contend for the kingdom collectively contend for the kingdom. If you were to turn to chapter 3, which I encourage you to do, I'm not going to read chapter 3. Um, but in chapter 3, we get this bird's eye view of the city. And we see this citywide renovation uh, project. And in all of chapter 3 of Nehemiah, is we get this list of all the people building, all the list of names of people building, and all the places getting rebuilt, all the places getting rebuilt. And so if you had like a Google Earth satellite image of what was happening, it would look like a massive anthill. Right? of like north, south, east, west, uh, all the walls, all the gates, and all the the people from the satellite view going here and there, and the the city just electric, everyone moving and contending collectively to rebuild the city. And what's interesting, this stuck out to me, what's interesting is that it wasn't just the skilled craftsmen who rebuilt the walls that we see in chapter 3. What we learn in chapter 3 is that priests were there Rebuilding the walls, it on good authority that not most priests know much about, brick and mortar. Um, and a perfumer, they had a perfumer laying some brick. Uh, male and female, young and old. In verse 12, we see in chapter 3, verse 12, Shalom's, uh, Shalom's uh, daughters were there helping rebuild the walls and the gates. So it was basically the impression we get was it didn't matter what trade or skill or, or whatever you, you had. It was everyone and their mother and grandmother and daughter, we're, we're working together to unify and rally around this mission. And the reason I want to focus on that is I think we often limit ourselves in what we'll do for the kingdom and, and following Jesus and, and where He's inviting us to live life of faith and obedience to the Great commission, is we often limit ourselves based upon personality tests and spiritual gifts assessments. Right? Like, imagine with me, like, Nehemiah gives this, like, boom, powerful Braveheart speech, and then the perfumer, like, comes up afterwards to Nehemiah. I think the perfumer is named in, in verse 8, and I don't know what a perfumer did in the first century, but, like, maybe he had, like, that, that small shop with all the essential oils and the infusers and lavender and spearmints. Any of you EO? Don't raise your hand. Anyways, um, let's just say that, like, that was his gig, okay? So he could go up to, he could go up to Nehemiah and say, hey, Nehemiah, like, I'm an Enneagram Seven, and I don't have the spiritual gift of like brick of laying bricklaying, and like because I'm an Enneagram Seven, I don't have so I'm just I can't do this. I'm not going to roll up my sleeves and and contend. I can't. I'm just a I'm, I'm a perfumer, and I think if that was the response, Nehemiah could clearly look at this individual and say, well, let me ask you a follow-up question: Are you a child of God or are you an Enneagram Seven? Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you this certain Enneagram? Or are you a TNJ, Myers-Briggs, whatever? Like, like where, where do we try to place an identity over us that isn't what Christ has placed over us? Right? To the extent that, like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this number, and this is my, I'm an introvert, so therefore, I don't actually have to serve people. I don't have to talk to anyone. You know, like, I've tried to use that excuse before, I'm actually an introvert. Um, And other people have different gifts. Other people have different strengths. But followers of Jesus, all of us are called to serve. Right? All of us are called to serve. And at the end of the day, your gifts, your spiritual gifts, your natural gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ, and your personality type, they all bend their knee to the lordship of Jesus and his commission to serve each other and to outdo one another with love and honor. At the end of the day, hey, that's great. You're an Enneagram. I'm a six, by the way, if you're wondering. Uh, and uh, I had to take that for a while back anyways, but I don't want to talk too much on people hold those things dearly. But uh, we need, we need, we need to stop labeling ourselves as anything but a follower of Jesus or child of God. Because when we do that, there's a tendency for us to limit what, to limit our obedience to Jesus. And, and honestly think, I think it's the devil's way too of, of thinking we're disqualified i thinking we're disqualified to do what Jesus has called us to do. And if you want to know how to discover kind of your natural spiritual gifts in the church, and well, like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, like various members who have given specific gifts to build up the body, if you want to discover that, I wouldn't encourage you to go online and take a, a gift assessment test. I wouldn't encourage you. I would encourage you to start serving. Start serving in the body of Christ. Start serving in a community group. Start serving, and, and your gift will find you your gifts will find you. Start laying hands on people and praying for them and seeing what happens. You want to? oh, I have the gift of healing. Okay, we'll start laying hands on people, see what happens, right? And so that's how we find it. We start serving, we start contending, and you let your gift find you. And the community of believers gets to rally around that and confirm that, yes, we see this in you. And the beauty of what we see here, the beauty of this picture we get in our text of everyone kind of getting over themselves and collectively contending and collectively unifying on the mission to rebuild God's city is this, is that everyone gets to play in the game. Nobody has to ride the bench. Nobody rides the bench. Like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, God has gifted all of us, all of us, each and every one of us, if there's breath in our lungs and if we're in Christ Jesus, we have something to offer. God has actually gifted you is what the scriptures promise and saying that you are not a... uh, a second-class citizen in the kingdom. You're not JV squad. You are uniquely gifted in a way that I'm not uniquely gifted, in a way that others aren't uniquely gifted, and therefore, and therefore you don't come empty-handed to any, any great commission call, any church. You never come empty-handed. You have time, talents, and treasures that God has entrusted to us to use for his glory and for the good of others. None of us have to ride the bench, and better said this, is that all of us get to play. All of us get to play in the game, Right? All of us get to play the game. And so I'll conclude with this. Band, you can come on up. Um, John 13, turn to John 13, the upper room discourse. Um, if you know the context of John 13, this was the um, the last night, this is the Passover meal, last Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was betrayed and um, went to the cross the next day. It was just Thursday night. And... Um, at that meal, Jesus is with the 12 disciples, and there was an unmet need in that room. There was a, a stank to that room. There was a, a, a brokenness, if you will, in that room, and it was 24 nasty man feet that were not washed before the meal. As you entered somebody's house at that time, it was common courtesy if you had a servant that the first thing you would do before you enter that house, like you take somebody's shoes off before you come into my house at our community group. I don't know, depending on the day, you can leave them on. Anyways, fun fact about our group. Um, But in that culture, you would, let's wash those feet. And this is around the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, which meant that thousands of pilgrims came into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal on animals. So there's animal waste all throughout the city that they're walking in sandals throughout, and then they're coming in this meal. And there comes a moment in the meal where uh, during the supper, it says in John 13, where Jesus takes off his outer garment and he puts on a towel around his waist, which, is, which was the sign of what a servant would do. And so he's kind of laying aside, in a way, like uh, the, the status symbol of, of being Christ, being the Messiah. But he said that the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus got on his hands and knees, and he began to scrub toe by toe, foot by foot. He began to scrub the stench and the stain of the dirt off of the disciples' feet. Symbolizing what he was going to do the next day in 24 hours. Like, the, I mean, one of the most beautiful pictures in all the gospel is Jesus Christ saying, You know what? This is what I came to do. Let me get on my hands and knees and, and descend into your brokenness, descend into your filth. And this is what he says John 13, 12 through 17. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, "Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me Teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed. Are you if you do them? In verse 14, Jesus essentially says the only precondition to being used by me to serve others and to wash feet is having Jesus Christ wash your feet. That's the precondition. That's the precondition to what to being commissioned to go and tell the world what Jesus is like. And the whole of the Christian life is we get to just go. And tell others what this great king, this precious savior, this humble servant has done for us. And so today, we don't just look at, okay, what are the needs around us? Or where am I gifted? But it's first and foremost, what we're asking is we want to remind ourselves. And this is why I want to close with just worshiping Christ. We want to ask ourselves, what has Jesus done for me? What has Jesus done for me? The good news of the gospel. As the Son of God, the Christ of glory, took on my stench. He took on my stain of sin as his responsibility to deal with. He took ownership over my problem, a problem that wasn't his. He owned the mission. He took it upon himself on the cross, fully absorbing the wrath of God. And then he counted the cost. Like Jesus knew the only way that cleansing was going to come of, of the stench And uh, the wickedness of our sins that separated us from God, the only way cleansing was going to come to bring healing and bring reconciliation between a holy and righteous God and sinful humanity was for the very Son of God, fully God, fully man, to lay down his life and to take our stench, to take our sins upon himself to the cross and to lead them out of the grave and rise victoriously. Symbolizing that 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 sin is forever washed away and forever defeated. And he counted the cost. He counted the cost of what he would have to pay to save us, to bring us home. The cost of absorbing our sins on his shoulders and embracing the wrath of God. And when he put us on the scales of the cost of giving his life, laying it down, being forsaken by the Father, experiencing the pure spotless land, all the sin, all the filth, all the iniquity upon him, and he put us on the other side of that scale. He said, it's worth it. He said, you're worth it. That's, what, that's the message of the gospel, is Jesus saying you are worth it. While we were still sinners, our feet still stained and stenched with our sin, Jesus Christ said, you are worth laying my life down. I'm going to cleanse you of your sins and bring you on home. And now the greatest joy of our life is just going and simply telling, telling others of what this great king has done for us. So what I want to do is uh, let's go silent and let's posture our hearts to respond to the message. We'll share communion and then we'll worship our king and celebrate uh, what he's done. So um, let's go silent before our king and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you. We love you. We thank you for what you've done. When you said it is finished, it is finished. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, I want to just speak this over you. First John 1 says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you would apply that truth, the reassurance of pardon, for your people today, that they wouldn't look down and see the stench and stain of of sin on their feet anymore, but they would see that you've condescended in their life, that you've, you've gone low and you've entered into and pressed into the filthiest places of their lives. What's filthier than feet? And you went down there and you got your hands dirty. It was your hands that washed us. It was your hands that cleansed our iniquity. It was your hands that are scarred with the nails that were were pierced, that pierced you on the cross. It's not our hands. And so would we as a people lay aside the rags? Maybe some of you are here today, you're you're, you're working your fingers to the bone, trying to cleanse the, the filth off your feet, not realizing that Jesus has done it. And maybe if he hasn't done it in your life, you're not saved. Let him do it today, where your conscience is unclean and you feel the weight of your sin and shame, invite Jesus, the Messiah, to come and say, oh, cleanse me, God, by your blood. Wash me, create in me a clean heart, and restore to me the joy of knowing you and salvation. So do that today, Lord God. We celebrate you, we remind ourselves of your great love for us and the cost that you went, the lengths you went, the height you went to save us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to bring us home to the embrace of our Heavenly Father while we were sinners. You went low and you came to where we were at and met us where we were at. And so may we do the same. I'm praying in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's celebrate the Lord's table, communion. This meal just commemorates God's love and the finality of it, right? Of that it's not our blood. It's not our body that was broken. It was somebody else who's cleansed us. It's somebody else who washed us. Somebody else who saved us. Our hope as believers is what God has done for us, not what we do for God. And so let's close today. Let's remind ourselves of that it is finished forever. I am held firm in the clutches of the good Savior who gave his broken body and his shed blood to rescue me from my sins and separation from God forever. This here represents the body of Christ broken for you. the blood of Jesus shed for your sins and mine. Well, I just felt led uh, this morning as we were worshiping that our Savior is worthy of not just one song of worship, but maybe two, amen? And so I want to sing forever again, and then that new song again. So run it back to songs two and three. And let's worship our King. Get your focus on who's around you, And let's just lift our chins. Colossians 3 says, if we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And I want all of our eyes to not be on a sermon or even worship leaders, but have our eyes fixed firmly on Christ reigning and ruling over our sin, over death, over the chaos in our world, that we have this great hope of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then I'll close us with a benediction.